Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It will be a fight. And there'll be a lot of death, unfortunately. It will be a fight we will win. But a lot less death. But there will be death. People should be actually kept out of the country for at least 28 days. America is not prepared. G'day ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Butterfield Effect podcast on today's show. I've got a, a dude that's making me nervous because he's extremely bloody smart. Dr. Gard Sayed, right? I tried to pronounce that correctly with the Arabic guttural tone, but uh, I'm sure I failed. Dr. Saad is a professor of marketing at Concordia University in Montreal in Canada. He's pioneered the use of evolutionary psychology in marketing and consumer behavior. A very interesting dude. He held the Concordia Research Chair in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption from 2008 to 2018. Dr. Saad, or the Gadfather, as we'll refer to him from now on, is a leading public intellectual who writes and speaks about idea pathogens that are destroying logic, science, reason, and common sense. His fourth book, which is coming out on October the 6th, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense, is no doubt going to be a bestseller. It's got a foreword from uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson. I'm sure it's going to be an absolute cracker. Guard speaks out against identity politics, social justice, radical feminism, bad ideas surrounding postmodernism, uh, where he sees fit. And his brand new book, as I said, comes out on October 6th. You can pre-order it right now with the link down below. But this is my chat with the great man, the Gadfather, Dr. Gad Sahel. Ladies and gentlemen, the Godfather is here. How are you, Gad? You're doing well? Very well, thank you. Nice to be with you, Isaac. It's a very interesting time to have you on, not only with your forthcoming book coming out, but this week uh, across Twitter, across Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, everyone is being cancelled. Joe Rogan, Joey Diaz, I wrote a video on it yesterday that will come out next week. Um, they have been the, the most recent um, people to suffer at the at the uh, at the forefront of this movement, from um, I mean, you get you get in a bit of trouble when you start calling people the radical left or the far left or whatever you want to call people. But the people who want to see people cancelled for things that may or may not have happened in the past. I mean, I know you've been on Joe Rogan's podcast several times. What what happens to yourself when you see someone? Because I'm sure you see it on Twitter all the time. People getting cancelled. But when you see someone who you're friends with, who you know, um, being affected by this type of uh, this type of craziness, type this type of attack on someone's entire life, really. Yeah, well, I mean, it drives me crazy. That's that's why I stay up at night because I simply can't. You know, I'm the guy who, see, if I see someone being attacked in the alley, I don't pretend that I didn't hear their screams. I I intervene to to a fault. In other words, I've become for be, for better or worse the sort of central repository of people, you know, writing to me to share with me their testimonies of 
what's been happening in their lives, uh, whether they're professors or, or students or parents of students or comedians. And so I take it to heart and it's really exhausting because the, the problem is not enough people who, who have <clears throat> the platforms are contributing their voices. And so it ends up, actually just today I kind of, I tweeted, I didn't, I didn't say that I'm walking away from it, but it's gnawing at me, right? Because every day I wake up, I'm almost afraid to open up my emails or Twitter or whatever, or any social media, because I know there's going to be a, a tsunami of stuff that's going to anger me. So it's very tough, but if, uh, if we all stand up together in unison, we can cancel cancel culture. If we don't, if you think it's not gonna come for you because you're hidden somewhere, they will eventually find you when they run out of all victims. Yeah, and it is it is a scary thing. I mean, most people who who have any type of um, you know social media uh, presence, if you do speak out against cancel culture or someone who's been cancelled, I mean, this week in Australia alone, we've had two uh, foodstuffs being cancelled: Redskins, which was a lolly, which was uh, obviously quite offensive to uh, um, American Indian people, and uh, these other tiny little uh, jelly lollies or candy that was called chucos or chocos um they look like small black babies now they have been cancelled this week uh these you know lollies that have been around for 50 60 years and you know honestly if i look at them i go yeah that's a bit weird that they're named that but whatever uh but this week it's it seems like for the the period of the coronavirus everyone sort of came together for a little bit and I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be... I, I thought it was terrible for my content online. I was like, I don't have anything to write about anymore. But then, all of a sudden, post-corona, well, not that we're posted, but post-corona, everyone's fighting again and coming back at each other. Do you think, and this is something that I've often wondered myself, is it's this very easy time to be alive. You know, we don't have to hunt for food. We don't have to go to war every single day, depending on where you live in the world, obviously. Um does this create this cancel culture? Does it create the factions between right and left? Is this why everyone is fight? Is this why when I go on Twitter, I get anxious because everyone's fighting back and forth and it's like you have to fire yourself up to get on Twitter because it's just ridiculous? Right. Well, look, it's uh, the malaise of the entitled, I call it, right? Uh, if you come from the environment that I come from, which some of your viewers who may not know my, my personal history, I, I was born in Lebanon where Lebanese Jews and we escaped the Lebanese civil war. Now, all civil wars are judged against the butchery of the Lebanese civil war because it set a new standard of what tribalism is, what true identity politics is. So for someone like me who escaped that type of environment to then come to the West for the next few decades to live you know, with, with, with peace, and now to see the types of things that people complain about it's offensive. It's offensive in the true sense of the word because it demonstrates that the people who are engaging in this kind of hysteria truly have it too well because they don't know all of the possible repertoire of human experiences that exist out there, right? I mean, in, in Lebanon, when, when, when we actually escaped, the day that we escaped, I actually recount the story in my forthcoming book. Uh, as we left the Lebanese airspace and the uh, captain, you know, stated in, in the airways, okay, we're now outside of Lebanese airspace. My mother took out a, a you know, a, you know, like a star of David or a high, like that, that says that, you know, that you're Jewish. And she put it around me and she said, now you can wear this 
and not uh, you know hide your identity, right? right? So this is the against the backdrop of real oppression, right? Where every minute you could end up being executed because of your identity. To see the type of nonsense that is taking a foot in the West is truly a an insult to what people truly suffer around the world. Could you, and I'm not across the uh, Lebanese conflict, could you give us a quick rundown, the cliff notes, if you will, of what actually happened? Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of people, particularly in Australia, we know nothing about the rest of the world, if you could. Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, I, but I, if I understand correctly, there is quite a sizable Lebanese community in there Australia. There is, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, uh, so look, uh, Lebanon, as the Middle East goes, Lebanon was, quote, a progressive nation where many different factions, uh, many... Everything in the Middle East is viewed through the prism of religion, right? As a matter of fact, even your internal ID, the equivalent of a passport, but that you carry inside the country, has you, you froze. Are you are you still there? I'm still here. I don't know why I froze. I coughed. Um, I don't know if the computers caught the the coronavirus or what's happened, but I am still here. I can hear you. Okay, so then we just keep going. We're good. Yeah, let's keep going. I'll try and I'm back. Oh, yeah. Okay, you're back. All right. Very good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, try not to cough again so that we yeah. don't freeze the world. Yeah, nice yeah. Okay, so uh, so Lebanon basically, as I was saying, had, had these internal ID cards where your religion was written on it. So, for example, in our case, it wasn't even written in Arabic that you were Jewish. You were Israeli, Israelite, which even created greater animus against you because you weren't, in a sense, your Lebanese identity was removed. Somehow you were connected to Israel, even though we had nothing to do with Israel, we were Lebanese. So there was always a, a tense sort of uh, calm in Lebanon that could at any moment break out because of all of these different factions. Lebanon historically had been a majority Christian country, and at one point the demographics changed, so it became more uh, a Muslim majority. There was a very, very small, tiny minority of Jews that remained in Lebanon. Uh, it as, as the tension between Israel and uh, the Arab countries increased in the 20th century, it became increasingly more precarious to be Jewish. Uh, although the animus towards the Jews doesn't just come from the existence of Israel. So anyways, in 1975, there, were, uh, there was a war that broke out. It's difficult to describe in terms of who's against who because there were a million different armed militia. But generally speaking, you had the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was heavily rooted in Lebanon. You had other Muslim militias that had different uh, political beliefs, and you had some Christian groups. And generally speaking, the Christians were fighting against uh, the Muslims. The very, very small minority of Jews really had to get out of there because we didn't have too many friends. There weren't too many roadblocks that you could clear. And so we had to leave you know, by the skin of our teeth. And so we were there for the first year of the Civil War. The war lasted from 1975 to 1990, officially. Several hundred thousand people were killed for a country of, at the time, three million people. That's a very, very sizable proportion of the country. And it was real butchery in that, you know, there's nothing that can ignite the, the fervor of people than, more than their religious identity. And so people who lived in co peaceful coexistence as neighbors suddenly from one day to the next became, you know, mortal enemies. And uh, so it was a very, very difficult situation. Uh, I've never gone back. Uh, I've been invited to go back, but I don't feel that it's particularly safe to go back. Uh, and yeah, so, so now there is a, a, officially it's peaceful, but you don't know when the next car bomb is gonna come at you. So I've had a guest, for example, on my show, 
uh, who is the son of the former uh, minister of finance of Lebanon, who was killed in a, you know, in a bomb uh, about, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago. So even though there isn't officially war in Lebanon today, it's still a precarious situation. And you escape that, this real oppression based on your religion. And, in and for you to sit back there and compare it to people who throw terms around like oppression exactly. on a daily basis, I understand where you're coming from. It must be quite offensive for you and, and the people surrounding you. Well, I could tell you a story. I mean, I'll tell you just a few stories. I've, I've, some of these stories I've recounted in the past, some of them I discussed in the book. So when I was uh, maybe eight or nine, so a couple of years before we left Lebanon, uh, I went to a sort of posh French school. Lebanon at one point was a French protectorate. So the educated class in Lebanon, of course, spoke Arabic, but they also typically were educated in the French system. And so I went to what's called the lycée in, in, in French. And uh, the teacher at one point asked the, the students to each get up and state what they wanted to be when they grow up. And so, you know, Person X gets up, I want to be a soccer player, I want to be a policeman, I want to be a nurse. And then one uh, kid gets up and says, when I grow up, I want to be a Jew killer. And everybody laughs and claps. Now, he knows that I'm Jewish. He knows that I'm his friend. I actually have photos from that time, and I still remember who he is. I could exactly point to who that kid is. Uh, now, that was very normal in Lebanon in that, yes, you, you lived in Lebanon. People could know who, that you are Jewish. They just had to go to the synagogue to see who's attending the synagogue. So it wasn't difficult to know that you're Jewish, but you knew that there was an undercurrent of anti-Semitism that you know, permeated every walk of life. You could be sitting and talking somewhere, and if it's too sunny, F the Jews. If it's too rainy, F the Jews. If the economy is bad, F the Jews. So if you get diabetes, F the Jews. So I grew up with that dark secret of being. So whenever people tell you that they face oppression in, in the West, they literally have no idea what they're talking about because the oppression that we faced, even in quote progressive Lebanon, was one that can go from they tolerate you to tolerance is lifted and you better run real quickly because your head is about to be detached from the rest of your body. So it is very offensive and it demonstrates something that historians have talked about for a long time, which is usually great civilizations don't uh, you know, uh, collapse because of an external enemy. They, they collapse, they implode from within because of the excesses of their society that becomes cancerous. And this is what we're seeing in the West. It's, it's the idea pathogens, which I talk about in the book, that are being promulgated in our universities that, are, that if the West is ever destroyed, is going to bring us down. It won't be a, an external enemy. And it's one of these things where we see this idea of oppression and uh, people's genuine, general, general attitudes towards I am a victim that we see in places like I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to travel around Australia and go to different country towns and all the cities. And you do not see that in country towns. You do not see that in places where people have to listen, I've got to work. I need to work. I need to do things. I need to do manual labor where that, you know, the ratio between working in an office building to working outside, busting your ass every day is quite high. When you go to the cities and you see these people, particularly in Melbourne, and I'm not sure how familiar you are, you are with Australia, but in Melbourne. I am very familiar. Before you go on, I spent uh, seven weeks in Australia and New Zealand in 2001. Five of those seven weeks 
were spent traveling through many of the major cities of Australia. So I, right. I know Melbourne very well, actually, yes. And Melbourne I, is probably my favorite part of the world so far. I've only been to eight or nine different countries, but I love Melbourne. Unfortunately, it is full of victims. They have protests every single week about everything that you can name. And it, it's just a strange place to be. I, I wonder, like particularly at the moment with the whole racism and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, do you think that race has, this is just something that I was pondering the other day driving home, do you think race maybe has changed? Back in, you know, the general sense of the word race is where your people are from. But now when every country is multicultural, at least in the West, would not, wouldn't your race then be the country you are born in? Like I am Australian or someone is American and that becomes their race, that becomes the people they are attached to? Because I guess in my mind, my uneducated mind, race is something that is based on, okay, we are on the shores of England and another, another race is coming to take whatever. You know, back, back in the day, we're talking about Vikings, we're talking about traders. Do you think race maybe has changed a little bit and people are grabbing onto something that is perhaps past? Well, I mean, the, I, off the top of my head, the first thing that I would say is probably because of our ability to uh, have lesser delineation between us versus them, as say compared to 100 years ago, I think you have, as you said, many more multiracial societies, but not in the sense that we coexist, but in that we intermingle in, in, in our reproduction, right? I mean, we, we mate with one another, right? So you take a country like Israel or a country like Brazil, uh, two of the countries that have some of the most beautiful people, uh, I mean, physically. And I think one of the reasons why they have some of the most beautiful people is precisely because they are a true reproductive melting pot, right? You have people, so for example, in Israel, you have uh, the Mizrahi Jews, so Jews like me, Arabic Jews. You have the Ashkenazi Jews that came from Europe to settle in Israel when Israel was founded. You have the Ethiopian Jews that left Ethiopia. So these are black Jews. You have Russian Jews. So, so you have a real melting pot so that you end up with these truly beautiful mixes of people. Same exact thing has happened in, uh, in Brazil, as I said, where you have some, I remember when I traveled with my brother back in 1992, we had gone to the uh, Rio Carnival and we were walking at the time at the beach in Rio. And I see a, a, a beautiful woman on the beach and I look to my, I turn to my brother and I say, that might be the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. About five meters later, I say, no, 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 wait, scratch that. I think this is now the most beautiful pe woman I've ever seen. And as we were walking, I probably changed my opinion about a hundred times because every three meters, there was now the most beautiful woman. And I think it comes from this intermingling, this melting pot, pot of, of races. Uh, m I think my bigger question would be, why do we care about race so much? I mean, I always tell people, I mean, to me, it seems so banal what I'm about to say, but apparently it bears repeating. Why not judge people by the totality of their personhood as individuals? So I judge Isaac based on the, the total merits and flaws that constitute the personhood of Isaac. Uh, very, very low on the list, maybe not even on the list, is whether he is white or indigenous or black. I don't care. I don't care about you. And I don't say this to sound uh, liberal or cool. I genuinely couldn't give a damn. So I hate the fact that the place that I escaped from, Lebanon, which was defined by identity politics, is exactly where we've returned to. And I've made the prediction, by the way, Isaac, I said for many years now that if the West doesn't get its act together, 
we will have Lebanon on every street corner in the West, whether it be in five years, in 10 years, in 50 years, it's coming. Well, we already are starting to see some of those fissures. So I'm not saying that tomorrow we're all going to butcher each other. But if you constantly create a narrative of us versus them, look, humans are a coalitional species. We have the tribal mindset. It's not difficult to get me riled up about me, the blue team, versus you, the red team. What's beautiful about Western liberal democracies is that we found a way to break through that, and now we're reverting to all this bullshit. So I don't want to talk about race. I want to talk about your individual merits and, and flaws. I've had to be introspective with these ideas too because I've been labeled all of the things that I'm sure you know people who speak out get labeled. I've been called racist just because I, I question certain ideas. I've been called anti-Semitic because I made a joke in a show that wasn't even about Jewish people, but people connected it to it. And on that, I, I'm from Newcastle, which is about two hours north of Sydney. And I've, I had never met a Jew at this point. I had no reason to hate Jewish people. It was, it was hilarious to me that people would say that. I was just like, what are you fucking talking about? People say sexist, all these things. And I have to be introspective because I grew up with my father teaching me that it's all about content of character. Nothing else matters. And I, I get that some people don't have that. Some people do hate other people based on where their great-great-grandfather was born. And I think that is absolute garbage and it exists in such a minute part of the general population of whatever country you are in. But it is portrayed as the majority of thought. And I think that is, that is obviously just horrible and it's detrimental to any, any push forward for people to, to grow out of this shit. Like it, right. You see it now in American Seattle with the, the city of Chaz. I mean, um, the country of Chaz, the country of Chaz. My apologies. And even in Oregon at the moment, uh, this came out today that uh, people of color, non-white people, uh, they were referred to, uh, do not have to wear face coverings in public because of the coronavirus. But white people do because they will be racially profiled more than the white people. It's like we people are equal. Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, Stanford University, I just shared this uh, on social media before I came on your show. Uh, Stanford University, uh, the, the, I, I don't know the exact title, but the Black Association of Students at Stanford or the, the Student Association, the, the Stanford Black Student Association at, uh, at Stanford came out with a list of demands. Some of them are absolutely hallucinatory. Uh, I mean, it, they, 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 they truly, I mean, it's almost impossible to know that they're not satirical. Uh, that's what makes it so sad. One of which I'll just share one, but there are many others. I, 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 I'd, uh, you know, ask anybody to, to go check it out. Uh, they're asking that for every black student at Stanford, uh, there should, or every five black students at Stanford, there should be one black therapist available. So if you if you need to go into therapy, right? You you have anxiety, you have depression, whatever it is that you have. I mean, is there anything more racist than mm. to say that seeking mental health is linked to the pigmentation of my skin? I mean, do we now teach mathematics? By the way, th- there are some people who propose this. Do we teach people based on, so for example, for me to learn mathematics, I should be able to learn it from someone who looks like me. Really? The distribution of prime numbers depends on whether a fellow Lebanese Jew teaches it to me. 
Does it not transcend my heritage? Isn't that what the scientific method does, which is it liberates us from the shackles of our personal identities? So it's as if 500 years of renaissance, of scientific enlightenment, of the scientific method is being rolled back in just a few years. And in a sense, forgive the shameless plug again, that's really, the, the if I may say, the power of my forthcoming book, which is I trace all of these idea pathogens. So if I can take, can I take a few minutes to talk about this a bit? Please. Yeah. So I basically use the model of uh, neuroparasitology. So new, new, parasitology is the study of parasites. Neuroparasitology are parasites that infect a host's brains, right? A, a parasite can go in your gut, right? A parasite can go in your stomach. But there are some class of parasites that go inside your brain and they cause the host who is parasitized by this brain worm to engage in very maladaptive behaviors. So let me give you a few examples and then I'll link it to what I do in my book. So, excuse me. So if you take, for example, Toxoplasma gondii, which is a neuroparasite that inf uh, infects the brains of mice. Mice should be afraid of cats, but the ca uh, mice who are infected with this parasite lose their innate feet of innate fears of cats. As a matter of fact, they become sexually attracted to the smell of the urine of the cat. So they then go towards the cat and the cat eats them and then the reproductive cycle of the parasite can be completed. There's another type of parasite that attacks the brains of ungulates, deer, moose, elk, so that when they are parasitized by this brainworm, they start engaging in this circling behavior. They literally go around in a very small circle with sort of their head bobbing and they can't extricate themselves from this you know, motor movement, even though the looming predators might be coming to them, right? And so I take this idea of how neuroparasites can cause deleterious consequences to an animal that is parasitized by this brainworm, and then I argue that humans, humans can be parasitized by another class of brainworms. They're called idea pathogens. In other words, you don't need an actual physical brainworm to end up engaging in profoundly maladaptive behaviors, behaviors that have ill consequences on you. And so then I trace all of these parasites, idea pathogens, very much the way an epidemiologist would do. So in a sense, what's happening today with the coronavirus <clears throat> is exactly the model that I take, which is where did the virus originate from? How did it spread? How quickly does it spread? Do, do we have a vaccine against this virus? And so I argue, and believe me, it takes a lot of courage to, to argue what I'm about to say as a academic, I argue that all of these idea pathogens were spawned within the ecosystem of the university. In other words, it takes intellectuals to come up with really dumb ideas, right? And so I trace all these idea pathogens, I explain how they lead to bad consequences, and then I offer hopefully some valuable vaccinations or antidotes or inoculation against these bad ideas. Maybe I could share one or two of these idea pathogens because you might be thinking, well, what do you mean by idea pathogens? So for example, postmodernism is probably the granddaddy of all idea pathogens because it negates the possibility that there is an objective truth, right? There are, there are, there are subjective truths. There is my truth. You could read into anything, anything you want, right? Well, of course, that's a profoundly nihilistic viewpoint because scientists wake up every morning thinking that there is a truth out there to be discovered. Now, truth can change. In science, everything is provisional. What we thought was true 300 years ago is no longer true today. So we are humble enough to say, it's not true, therefore it will never change. But we do start the day off 
thinking that there is a truth to be discovered. There's no point for me being an evolutionary psychologist studying human universals if I don't think there's such a thing as objective truth or human universals. So postmodernism, by its very nature, is a form of intellectual terrorism. So it has resulted in generations of students being completely parasitized with mush of bullshit that turns their, their brains into useless inability to engage in critical thinking. I'll give you a, a very quick, for, forgive me if I'm being long-winded, there's no, so no, much. I want to go for it, for please. So about, I actually shared the story on another Australian show earlier this past weekend. So if there's any overlap in your audiences, they might hear it again, but it's worth hearing again. So in 2002, uh, one of my doctoral students had, had just defended his dissertation. And so we were going out to celebrate uh, over dinner. So it was myself, my wife, my doctoral student, and his date for the, for the evening. And prior to going out that evening, he warned me that his date was a postmodernist and a radical feminist and a graduate student in cultural anthropology, which is kind of like the holy trinity of bullshit. <laughs> and so, so he asked me, you know, can we, can we keep it down? Can we be, I said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll be on my best behavior. Mum's the word. I'm going to be really good, which of course was complete nonsense because I wasn't going to be on my best behavior. So we get to the evening. We're having a nice time at one point, very politely, very gingerly. I asked this, uh, this person, so I hear you're a postmodernist. Yes. Okay, so you don't, there are no universal truth. There is no objective truth, correct? Yes, no objective truth. Okay, well, do you mind if I propose what I consider to, I think there are some objective truths, and then you can correct me how they're not really objectively true. She goes, go ahead, go for it. I said, okay, is it objectively true that within Homo sapiens, within human species, only women bear children? Is that a universal? So she scoffs rolls her eyes in disgust at my blatant sexism and says, no, it's not true. Said, it's not true. How is that? She said, oh, well, there is a Japanese tribe off some island off Japan where in their mythological realm, in their folkloric realm, it is the men who bear children. So by you restricting the conversation to the material realm, this is how you keep us you know, pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen. So after I recovered from my mini stroke, I then said, do you think I could take another shot at another, another attempt? She goes, yes, go for it. I said, okay, let's not discuss something as controversial as reproduction and that only women can bear children. That seems to be too difficult a territory. How about we do a cosmological uh, test? Is it true that from the vantage point of anywhere on earth, sailors have since time immemorial relied on the fact that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Is that true? And there she used a rhetorical game from postmodernism called deconstructionism. So she basically said, well, these are labels. What do you mean by east and west? What do you mean by the sun? That which you call the sun, I call dancing hyena. Literally exactly those words. So I said, okay, well, the dancing hyena rises in the east and sets in the west. When I go to the Caribbean and I don't want to get a dancing hyena burn, I put dancing hyena lotion on me. 
She says, no, no, I'm not going to play these label games. So this person was not an outlier, Isaac. This person was simply mimicking and aping what she had learned in graduate school. There is no objective truth. What do you mean only women bear children? What do you mean East and West? What do you mean the sun? So imagine if you're training hundreds of thousands of students to believe in this gibberish. They don't study consumer psychology or neuroscience or mathematics or engineering. They study intellectual terrorism. What do you end up with? You end up with all of the idea pathogens that we see today in the West. There you have it. But how? How does one go to university, someone who is quote unquote intelligent, and walk away from a lecture without the ability to even slightly think or have some critical thinking ability about said lecture? It's just, it baffles me that, that people are that, that fucking stupid. Excuse my French. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I am, I, I am fluent in Spanish, in French. I don't think that was a French word, but okay. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. Uh, think about cults. Think about, you know, no disrespect to, to people who are religious. When you think about the things that people believe, right? You could be a very serious scientist and yet believe astonishing things that come from your religion that that are so insane that it's difficult so it's the same thing it's a so if take for example i don't know if you remember do you remember the cult heaven's gate uh, yes yeah so they were a cult who were ufologists they believed that they were aliens and that they were going to be on a certain day at a certain time they were going to be beamed up to kind of go to their final resting place and the guy who started this cult for many, many years had tried to start all sorts of various cults. In this case, he was able to attract a group of, I don't know, 39, 40 committed uh, you know, believers who committed mass suicide. The men castrated themselves because in their ideal states, they should not have a biological sex. So then I would ask you the exact same thing. How could it be that normal human, I mean, well, maybe they're not normal, but how could it be that human beings could be parasitized by such bad ideas. The exact same process takes place with these university students. The way it works, in my view, is as follows. Uh, Postmodernism relies on, if you like, a sleight of hands. What it does is it creates prose that is gibberish, that is impenetrable. So if you, I would, I would, I would ask any of your viewers to go and read the work of Jacques Lacan, L-A-C-A-N, or Jacques Derrida, or Michel Foucault. These are the three probably most prominent French postmodernists, French from France. Uh, and I say from France because I'm in Montreal, Quebec, so that we're also French, right? Uh, you won't be able to understand a word they're saying. Now, usually the typical human being does the following. When I ex I'm exposed to something that I don't understand, I have two options. I could either say that the person who is writing this stuff is a charlatan, he's saying gibberish, or I could internalize my failure for understanding what he said. It must be that I'm too dumb to understand what he's saying. So this is how the university students were parasitized. These very charismatic figures would stand up at Princeton and Yale and Harvard, enunciate some of the biggest random gibberish bullshit that you could think of, and people would stand and fawn at the full profundity of what they were saying. And the more that these idiots did it, the more they could attract the crowd because, my God, I must be too dumb to understand what this profound person... As a matter of fact, Michel Foucault admitted exactly what I'm saying here 
in a discussion he had with the philosopher John Searle, uh, John Searle, who knew Michel Foucault, said to him, how come when I speak to you person to person, I seem to understand you, but whenever I read your works, I can't understand anything. And Michel Foucault, to his credit, answered honestly, he said, well, in France, if you don't confuse people, they don't take you seriously. So it's exactly the theory that I'm saying. So this is, so it's a form of cultism. It's a form of religious fervor. It's the capacity for typically charismatic professors to stand up in front of very impressionable minds, say incredibly, seemingly profound things that mean nothing. And then you have a bunch of impressionable minds that then just ate the same thing, such as, what do you mean by the sun? I call it dancing hyena. And so what I fight against is really this intellectual terrorism. Not only are we ruining the lives of people who could have been studying all sorts of wonderful things. And by the way, I don't mean to imply that the only thing that you should be studying are, you know, the sciences. You could study literature, you could study art, you could study the humanities, philosophy. So I'm not denigrating any field of study, but any field of study has to be rooted in reason, in logic, in common sense. It can't be a nihilist movement, an anti-intellectual movement. And that's what we have in the West now, and it has to end. Where, where are we at the moment as far as this, this movement of intellectual terrorism? Is, is it getting worse? Is it getting better? I know that you've been tweeting the last couple of days of more and more people in academia reaching out to you. Where does it stand right now? Uh, well, postmodernism, I would probably say it's slightly started to decrease. So its zenith was probably about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but it is still, I mean, so, so, the, so instead of infecting the minds of 500,000 people, it's infecting the minds of 400,000 people. But the virus is still very strong. Uh, I think what you're talking about more is the, the, the air of uh, totalitarian fear that has gripped the universities where, and, and hence this is what I was talking about in the social media uh, post that you're mentioning, where people write to me to share their testimony of, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you just one or two quick examples. And some of these I actually quote directly in my book, but I, I remove the identity of the person. Uh, Dear Dr. Saad, uh, I was working on a, in, a, in a lab with the, my supervisor uh, on a paper that I had my name on. And when he found out that I said something that was complimentary about Donald Trump, he removed my name from the paper. And now I'm out of the lab. Can you help me? Would, would you be willing to supervise me? Now, I received such an email. I said, wait a second. Is this from a Western university or is this in North Korea? Yeah. Is it in, you know, communist China? Is it in Yemen? No, no, no. It's at all of the top universities that you could think of off the top of your head. And as I said, I received an innumerable number of such emails. Uh, uh, Hi, Professor Saad. My name is Professor so-and-so someone pretty famous, a famous physicist or professor of medicine. I'm a huge admirer of yours, but please, if you read my email on your show, don't mention my name. Mm -hmm. So that person doesn't feel sufficiently confident not to take a position themselves, to simply say, I support Gad Saad for fighting for freedom of speech is now too controversial in some circles. So when when the, 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 the fear has gripped everybody so strongly, that's a problem. People are afraid to like a tweet because maybe it will imply people are losing their job based on liking a tweet. People are losing their jobs based on retweet, 
retweeting something. I had a black friend who wrote to me privately saying, hey, God, I'm getting some of my family members who want to disown me because I'm not exhibiting a sufficient pure support for the Black Lives Movement. He's black. He's going to be canceled by his own family. So it's a form of hysteria that is typical of totalitarian ideologies. So now most people say, oh, but aren't you, come on, aren't you exaggerating? Well, aren't these people just a small minority on campus? And my answer to them is the following analogy. How many people did it take to bring down 9-11, the buildings? Was it 19 million people? No. 190,000 people? No. You just needed 19 hijackers to alter our sense of safety forevermore. So you don't need 5,000 rabid social justice warriors on campus. You just need a committed, vociferous activist group that keeps the rest of us in check. Now, there's a very easy way to solve this. If the silent majority, and believe me, the majority hates that stuff, but they're silence, they're cowered into silence. If we decide to stand up in unison and say, no more of this, then the problem will go away. If not, we will be sniped out one at a time until there's nobody of us standing up. And it's a terrifying way to look at it, but it really is true. It starts younger as well. I've received emails from kids in maybe, let's say, grade 10 or grade 11 or 12 here in Australia who have been sent out of class for questioning feminism or debating the wage gap or any of these sort of ideologies that are a doctrine within, uh, you know, mainstream journalism or mainstream social media and they've been sent out and they're saying to me isaac we we because we, i've covered a few videos on things like you know those particular topics they said isaac we we we, we try to argue the point and, and we just got labeled by everyone to be sexist or you know to hate this particular gender they're like what do we do what do we it's do amazing. at this point by the way i'm one I'm, I'm glad that you said that you're receiving emails from such young folks one of the reasons why i was very excited to chat with you is because my suspicion was that your demographic group would be a, a younger group. And in a sense, unlike many of my highfalutin, elitist, ivory tower dwelling professors, I, I don't have that bent. In other words, I, I could be as fancy as the best of them, but I also believe that I'm a professor of the people. In other words, I care about reaching the 12-year-old, the 15-year-old, the 16-year-old, because ultimately they are the ones eventually who are going to lead us. I mean, to, to sound cliche, but that's true. So. So you're exactly right that in the same way that all of those people who are promulgating these idea pathogens are looking to get to our children at a younger and younger age, we also need to bring the battle to those guys. So for me, to, you know, I received, I saw a few things, oh, why are you speaking to this guy, meaning you? And I thought, what a dumb way to think about it. You know, Isaac has 1.4 million, I, forgive me, I said 1.3 on social media. <laughs> My deep apologies, sir. Thank uh, you. You'll have to... Yeah, right. You'll have to teach me later how to get such a large platform. But uh, maybe it's the beard. You have a just, fancy... Just yell and scream nonsense into a camera, guy. That's all you got to do. Okay, got it. Uh, so, so to me, look, uh, I'm a professor of marketing. Uh, part of being a good marketer is to know which distribution channels to sell your product. In this case, I'm selling ideas. So if Isaac Butterfield comes to me with a gigantic distribution channel with a very interesting demographic group that we should be targeting. I'm using all the language of marketing. Uh, 
I would be an idiot to not want to jump on it. But of course, my colleagues who smoke pipes, who drink cognac while looking down on the idiot morons below them who are just commoners, don't understand that, right? Yeah. But I've had the exact same thing happen to me. I went to, speaking of fancy schmancy, I went to give, I was invited to speak at Stanford Business School. It doesn't get much fancier than that in academia. The gentleman who took me out, the professor who took me out at night, before, the, 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 the night before my, my talk the next day, uh, said, oh yeah, I noticed that you've appeared on uh, Joe Rogan many times. I said, yeah, yeah. He goes, yeah, you know, at, uh, at Stanford, we, you know, we don't do research to, to then, you know, talk about it on Joe Rogan. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, we, we do, you know, we do basic science. I said, well, who's saying it's not an either or. I publish in top scientific journals, but I also think it's wonderful to go on Joe Rogan because if I go on Joe Rogan, it'll get 15, 20 million downloads. It, aren't we in the, aren't we in the business of creating knowledge and spreading knowledge? No, he, he looked at it with disdain. Right. So, I mean, and, and this is a professor in a business school. So imagine how wrong his view of the world is to think that appearing on a platform as powerful as Joe Rogan is something to be denigrated. So as long as our intellectual class doesn't have the right strategies to win the battle of ideas, we're going to keep losing. It's that's such a gross attitude for him to have. I mean, Joe Rogan's podcast, I've been listening to it since I was about 18 years old. I think I must have listened to well over a thousand episodes. It's quite sad, really. Your uh, six favorite ones are the six that I was on. Correct? Absolutely correct. Thank you for Thank uh, you. Uh, jumping in there. It's um, but but honestly, I've learned more from that than I did at my time at high school. Listening to people yeah. like yourself, Jordan Peterson, uh, other other intellectuals, Graham Hancock, uh, Randall Carlson. Um, you know, Sam Harris, these people who are very knowledgeable in their field and are able to give free information out to people who are there ready to consume it. And that's why I like having different people on this show. Um, back to my audience, it's surprising because my audience is usually between 15 years old and 30. And there's some older people as well. This is the great thing about doing live shows. As a comedian, I get to go around. I did 80, 80 shows in six different countries last year. And every single show, the audience was almost 50-50 male-female. And that shocks a lot of people when I tell that because I'm seen as this horrible piece of shit who hates women and all that type of rubbish. Um, and it's just, you know, obviously it's not true, but you see it at the shows, this reality. You see people of every religion, every creed, every single, um, you know, where they stand on the social ladder rich, poor, whatever, in Australia, bogans, the, the people with one tooth drinking beer all day, the bogans, you know, uh, up to the, the, the fancy lawyer. Everyone comes to these shows and you're able to trade ideas and laugh and talk mad shit about whoever because it all comes from the same place. We all sit there and go, this person uh, who we're talking about is an idiot. We need to poke fun at them. And that's, that's the thing I love about comedy is punching up. I also punch down. I'm not a, I'm a pig on stage. God, I'm a horrible person. I punch down. I coward punch. I'll throw punches wherever. It doesn't matter. So you <laughs> haven't had political correctness uh, shackles within comedy in Australia the way we've had it in North America? 
Uh, I know in uh, in Canada they had issues with people being actually yeah. fined for jokes, but not so much in Australia. Australia, like Canada, doesn't have a, a First Amendment, doesn't have free speech laws. But I haven't had too many issues. I mean, I've had a few scandals. Um, and if anyone Googles my name, you can find those scandals uh, as far as jokes that I've told. Um, there's been a few universities uh uh, in Canberra, the university, I got uh, news back that two universities in New Zealand for next year's tour said, no, we don't want Butterfield and his ideas here. That's uh, not what we're about. He doesn't align with the values of our university, which is the biggest, just these ones that I've ever seen in my life. This is but, the first such uh, gesture I've had on a show ever. Excellent. Thank you for joining us. Oh, <laughs> I used to be a soccer player, competitive soccer. I can I can handle all the the rough stuff. Don't worry about it. Go. Good, but this is the thing. This is what I've always tried to do is be able to have a. And I was a bit nervous about talking to you today because you, when I talk to intellectuals, I have to make sure that I'm, uh, you know, really trying to be on your level, so to speak. Because I, you know, I I've always sort of prided myself on being able to talk to the bloke who lays bricks and drinks beer for a living, and also talk to uh, a university lecturer. But um, Honestly, I haven't had too much political correctness try to uh, quash me, so to speak. There was a big um, streaming platform that we all know that uh, said to me just last week that my latest special was uh, too controversial for them right now with the current um, uh, situation in, in, in social justice politics and all that type of business. So they said, no, we're going to pass on your special because we just think it'll cause more drama than, uh, than it'll bring in you know, positivity or or, uh, or money or whatever. And that was quite uh, upsetting for me. I mean, you know, yeah. something that you work on for two years and then you, you spend a, a shit ton of money trying to produce and they go, well, we think this might upset some people. So we're not going to do it. And it's just like, all right, whatever. But um, I've been lucky with that. And I mean, a lot of my stand-ups about personal stories too. So it's not all just anti-social justice warrior, anti-feminism stuff. It's... Yeah. It's, you know, I've been doing stand-up for uh, seven years now and, and I started YouTube as a means to an end to, to gather that audience. And, and I looked at it from a marketing perspective. I made uh, my first videos about my hometown and then grew from there and then about my home state and grew from there and then about Australia and then about, you know, the world, so to speak. And that's how basically that was my business plan was to grow and grow and grow. And it sort of has uh, run that course uh, to this point. But uh, honestly, I've been very, very lucky with the political correctness. But I'm sure something will happen. I'm <laughs> sure. I'm sure someone's going to cancel me for something. It's only a matter of time. You know, there's a there's a term. Are, are you familiar with the term anti-fragility? Do you know what that means? Anti-fragility. No. So anti-fragility, I mean, the, the concept has existed well before. There's a friend of mine. His name is Nassim Talib, who's, who's a fellow Lebanese. Although he doesn't like to be called Lebanese, he likes to call himself a Phoenician, okay. the ancient society yeah. of Phoenicia. Uh, and so, anyway, so uh, Nassim wrote a book a few years ago called uh, "Talking About Antifragility," which refers to the following: uh, you want systems to be anti-fragile, meaning that they could withstand withstand stressors. Right? Imagine something that's very brittle. Right? If you if you if you uh, impart a stressor on it, it, if it's brittle, it breaks. But if it's anti-fragile, 
it could withstand that stressor, right? Now take that concept of, you know, I mean, in a, in a sense, think of it as the old adage, you know, squeaky doors don't break, right? Uh, a door that squeaks a bit, but that could withstand, that has been received, that has been weathered and battered is still standing. So I take this concept of anti-fragility and I argue that much of who we are as humans is really defined by our anti-fragility. So for example, I talk about friendships. If you and I are friends, but I'm afraid to ever talk to you about important subjects because I worry that if I share with you my position, you will unfriend me, which by the way, many people exactly say this, that I'm afraid to bring up these controversial topics because no one, you know, my friends will no longer think of me as a good person. My prescription is, Friendships have to be anti-fragile, right? If all we do is talk about the nice weather or, uh, you know, what kind of wine we like, then we aren't really true friends. True friends are those who can tr truly talk about difficult topics, hence their relationship could be stressed, and yet they could come out stronger on the other end, right? So the problem with all this political correctness is that it is contrary to anti-fragility. It basically creates humans who are so fragile that a misplaced joke by Isaac will bring the death of me because I will be, I need to go back into my safe space and so on. So all of the social justice warrior stuff is a negation of anti-fragility. But healthy human beings, strong human beings are those who are psychically anti-fragile, right? Listen, I speak Arabic. My mother tongue is Arabic. Right. So I've sat down and talked to people who are fellow Arabic speakers where they don't know that I'm Jewish. Therefore, their vile Jew hatred comes out when they're speaking to me, not knowing that I'm actually also Jewish. Guess what? Yes, I am annoyed that they say such horrible things, but I didn't wilt away and wither away with the wind. Their hatred made me stronger. Right. Mm -hmm. Even my Lebanese experience, the horrors that I experienced as a child, which no child should see, has made me a stronger person today because I'm anti-fragile. So from difficulty, it is truly the case that good things arise, right? That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. All of the cliches that you can think of. So by creating these sterile worlds where nobody is offended, everything is sterilized, everything is antiseptic, we're creating castrated individuals. That's why the West is dying from within. Look, I get emails from women who tell me, Dr. Saad, I can't get a guy to come up to me to ask me out. I mean, yeah. we're actually a reproducing species. We, we reproduce sexually. That act requires courtship. It requires one person to approach another and say, hey, you know, you look, you seem lovely. I'd love to go out with you for a coffee. But so many men have become so castrated that if they approach a woman, it's a form of verbal rape. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. Rape is devastatingly horrible. It's a terrible thing. Don't, don't label someone approaching you verbal rape. You are, you are uh, insulting how horrific a rape is by labeling everything rape. Just like what we talked about earlier. You, if you're offended by everything, and if you're scared by everything, you are insulting those who went through my experience in Lebanon, because we really faced oppression as Lebanese Jews. So we need to go back to creating an environment where people are anti-fragile, are strong. They could listen to a joke. 
I listen to endless jokes about Jewish neuroticism. And I don't wither away hurt because I'm Jewish, boo-hoo-hoo, Isaac made a joke about Jews. I probably will laugh at it and joke with you, and I don't care. Uh, when I was a soccer player, I used to be called camel jockey, which was a derogatory term for, you know, Arab, because I'm from Lebanon, so camel jockey. And I'm called sand N-word, okay? Uh, okay, they're ugly words and so on, but I live to love again. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Some people are assholes. Some people are racist. It's part of the repertoire of the human experience. You don't legislate these things. You take them on the chin and you move on stronger and better than before. That's it. And you improve those people with positive speech, good speech, not this totalitarian action of you cannot say anything. You can't speak. You cannot open your, your mouth. You cannot use your tongue. I mean, for me, and, and you would be, uh, I assume, quite similar playing soccer. You'd be around manly men, blokey blokes. And I was yes. around, I played rugby league for a long time and I was around blokey blokes. So you chose sort of a slightly more feminine sport. I understand, go on. Yep, fair enough. Uh, how dare you? Um, that was a microaggression. Um, I, <laughs> but being around those people and then going from that to this whole world of speaking to people online and, and on Twitter and, and, you know, 40% of the people I follow on Twitter, I follow them for content, people who I disagree with. I cannot believe how many weak-minded, soy boy men that exist in this world. It is actually quite terrifying because, as you said, there are women out there who enjoy a man who is who has masculine traits, and this this weird move from you know the mainstream social media people of the world or the or the uh, the articles written on BuzzFeed or wherever that men shouldn't be men. And I don't mean that as in if you are upset, you don't tell anyone or if you're feeling depressed, you don't tell anyone or you, you know, you cover your wounds. Like I was, I was in uh, Sydney two days ago for a funeral for my uncle and he, um, and yes, thank you. And he, uh, with, with my grandparents and my, and my, my grandfather has, uh, has an issue with a, a cancer on his foot, uh, son cancer. And uh, my Nana, she brought it up and he, and he said, no, 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 we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that here. And it's this old attitude of we don't talk about things, that uh, that stoic mindset. I mean, I, I get that that is how he lived his life and how he was brought up. But, it's, you know, I think things have changed now and men can talk about things. And I think that's wonderful. But men being the biggest pussies that have ever walked the face of the earth is not good. It is right. terrible. And that is well, only going to breed young men. Sorry. Only going to yeah, breed yeah. young men to be exactly the same. And I think that's even worse. Well, look, uh, I, uh, I wrote a psychology, so I have a psychology today column mm. uh, where, you know, I write usually sh short and pithy articles in around 600 to 1,000 words. And I had written at, at one point, the whole concept of toxic masculinity was spreading like wildfire, uh, not just in academia, but in popular culture, right? Toxic masculinity. You, I mean... It's a great idea to pathologize half of humanity called men. I mean, it's literally a pathological condition, right? Uh, now, some feminists will come back and say, no, 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 we're only talking about one manifestation of masculinity, which is toxic masculinity, which is BS. Uh, then other feminists said, no, 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 you don't need to put the qualifier toxic anymore. Masculinity itself is inherently bad. You don't need the toxic qualifier. And, and I discuss all this in my forthcoming book. Now, imagine if you are a young boy that is looking for uh, 
you know, the lighthouse of how to behave. What's, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a very quick story. And I did a, I did a sad truth clip on that in my, in my channel. At one point, my, my son and I were watching something. I can't remember what it is. I have two, two young children. And uh, my son was watching something with me where they were talking about, you know, the future is female and fe women this and females that. Women are... And he kind of looked at me, and I don't remember the exact words, you can, you can go look it up on my channel, where he sort of looked at me and said, you know, Daddy, are, are boys bad? And that broke my heart because I had to explain to him, no, 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 girls are great, son, boys are great, we judge, you know, the whole, we judge people. Based. But, the, but he had already been exposed to enough of the girls are great, the future is female. No, 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 not the future is female. The future is for everyone who is an honest, dignified individual who pursues their talents to their, to their limit. Uh, Ashton Kutcher, do you know who that is, Ashton Kutcher, the actor? He recently put out a, uh, a clip on his Twitter feed where his son asked him that, that he, he was going to read a bedside story to his two kids. And usually Ashton would read uh, the story to the daughter first. And his son asked him innocently, you know, why is it that you're going always with, with the daughter first? Why don't I go first? He's no son in our house. Girls always go first and so on. And now he's thinking that that's noble. That's virtuous. So I actually wrote to him. I don't know if he's going to read it or, or pay attention. I said, you don't have to be a fancy psychologist to recognize that telling one of your two children that they are always second by virtue of the genitalia that they have is not a good idea. It was really bad when we had institutionalized, institutional sexism against girls, and it's really bad when we now have it in the opposite direction. Both are bad, but yet somehow, today's form of sexism towards little young boys is viewed as laudable. It's viewed as virtuous because it is cloaked in the robe of, of nobility, of virtue. It isn't. It's grotesque. Telling your son that you come second in the home is not something that you should be promoting and yeah. being proud of on your Twitter feed. And yet he thought it was a great thing. But that gets him brownie points. That helps him land roles. Like if he's, I'm sure you saw on Twitter last week, uh, the celebrities coming out in the black and white video telling people that, you know, they need to support this and do that. Yeah, that's brownie points. It's gr It's so gross. You're not, you're not doing that because you believe it. Like anyone can see through that. And even the left was calling that out for bullshit. I mean, I was taught, I was taught from a, a young age with, with women, with girls that you treat them with respect. Uh, you open the door you offer the seat on the bus or the train or whatever. And I think that is a good thing to have. But when you put, put this wall up, this war against women, that young men are supposed to almost take a knee. Like, you know, our forefathers have um, defiled these women and treated them terribly. We must pay their, our respects to them and apologise. And right. having that distinction between genitalia is just so horrid and it's just it's it must be so confusing for a young man to okay. see that and you know that's okay. now you go, go what where that's one of the reasons that i make these you know i guess they're called anti-feminist rants or whatever you want to whatever you want to call them. they're all based on fact but that's why I go out there and say that. And I'm labeled a men's rights activist. No, I'm not a men's rights activist. I am someone who just calls bullshit when I say bullshit. And that's right. it. 
so the two, two, two points I want to make. Uh, one about the virtue signaling of the celebrities. I'll come back to, to that in a second. But first, let's take the examples of the chivalry that you were talking about. You open the door, you give your seat to, to the woman. Uh, I'm sure you're not aware that those examples that you just gave uh, in academia, we call these benevolent sexism. So yeah, get ready. Fasten your seatbelt. So strapped in. <laughs> yeah. So so and this this by the way comes from some pretty uh, respected psychologists. Again, all this covered in my forthcoming book. Get a copy, The Parasitic Mind. It will change your life. I guarantee. Links it. down below. Thank you. Uh, so I talk about this uh, scale that was developed. So when you when you're measuring uh, psychological traits, uh, let's say you want to measure envy, you want to measure how materialistic you are, how aggressive you are. Usually what you do is what's called the psychometric scale. You, it's a whole bunch of questions that you answer. And then based on your responses to these questions, I can categorize you on some scale, right? And these scales are then validated. So there's the scale that measures two types of uh, sexism. The traditional sexism, the one that you and I would agree is, is grotesque, uh, that's, they call it hostile sexism. But because, as I explained in the book, all roads must lead to bigotry, in other words, all states of the world must end up with Isaac being branded a Nazi. If he loves Jews, that proves he's a Nazi. If he doesn't love Jews, that proves he's a Nazi. So I have to create a, a, an edifice of bullshit that makes sure that you end up being a Nazi no matter what you do, right? So hostile sexism is all the sexism that most people who are viewing the show would agree is, is grotesque and obnoxious. Benevolent sexism is when you are kind to women when you are chivalrous to women, when you are galant to women. So, so the items that are used to measure your benevolent sexism are absolutely astonishing. So for example, you have to answer on a strongly agree to strongly disagree step. My life would be incomplete without a woman to love. If you strongly agree with that, that is a manifestation of you being benevolently sexist. Now. This doesn't take a fancy evolutionary psychologist such as this guy. We are a sexually reproducing species. Do you think that if a man says he is looking for a partner to share his life with, that is a manifestation of the most fundamental desire of a sexually reproducing species? To a sane person, the answer is yes. To the person who is trying to find sexist in every street corner, me saying that without the love of a good woman, I would not be happy is a form of sexism. If you answer, uh, I would always protect a woman if I see her being you know, accosted by bad guys. So I have two choices. I could either say strongly disagree, which we used to call a coward, mm. but now that's a good thing. If you intervene and protect someone who is being accosted in an alley, you are being benevolently sexist. So you, you see, excuse me, I'm going to use now a soccer term or a tough guy. It's a form of mind fucking, right? Because what I'm doing here is I am parasitizing your mind so that you lose your ability to know how to act. So does a good person intervene when they see someone being attacked? Well, if I go to Wellesley College, no because I don't want to be accused of being sexist. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so that's number one. Uh, 
Do you want to say something about this, or do you want me to go on to the virtue signaling of the celebrities? No, no, please, please keep going. I'm, 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 I'm sitting here just um, hearing all of this and going, it's, it's mind-boggling that real people have these thoughts. That's what I take away from this. Not just real people. The people who promulgate this are some of the fanciest intellectuals that you could think of, right? They're not the guys who dropped out of school in grade five to play Australian rules football. I'm not to stereotype. I'm not saying that. I'm sure they are very, but you know what I mean? They're not the brutes of the world. They are the highfalutin ivory tower. That's, that's why I say that these idea pathogens don't come from the bars and from the soccer fields. They come from the intellectuals, right? But anyways, uh, vir- so let, let me briefly talk about virtue signaling. So there's a concept in evolutionary. So for, for your viewers who don't know, I'm an evolutionary behavioral scientist. So I basically apply evolutionary biology to study human behavior generally and consumer behavior in particular. Okay? So I apply evolutionary thinking whenever I'm trying to explain many important phenomena. So take, for example, virtue signaling. Virtue signaling could be very elegantly explained via an evolutionary framework. Now, I, I have to step back a bit, so bear with me. Uh, don't, uh, don't daydream. Focus. You ready? You're, you're there. All right. I'm locked in. So, so there's, a, there's a concept in evolutionary biology called the handicap principle. So if you look, for example, at the peacock's tail, the peacock's tail could not have evolved be, through natural selection because having a very large peacock, a very visible peacock, reduces the survivability of the peacock. Therefore, how could it have evolved if it decreases survivability? Well, the answer to that is based on a second mechanism in evolution. There's natural selection, which is the evolution of traits that procure survival advantage, but then there is the evolution of traits that procure a mating advantage, meaning that some traits evolve not because they increase the likelihood of my surviving, but they increase the likelihood of my finding a suitable mate, right? The game of life is made up of two steps. First, I need to survive. Then I need to find a mate. I can survive all you want. If I don't promulgate my genes, I'm dead in an evolutionary sense, right? So therefore, the peacock's tail has evolved through sexual selection because female peahens, the females of that species, recurringly chose males with very large appendages. Now, why is that? So now I'm, and, and I'm going to link all this back to the virtue signals of the celebrities. Okay. So, so hopefully your viewers are going to see the power of uh, my evolutionary framework. Okay. So peacocking is very powerful because it is basically signaling the following. It is saying, despite the fact that this big tail increases the likelihood of predators getting me because I can't take flight, despite the fact that having all these iridescent colors makes me more visible to predators, I'm still standing here. Therefore, you should be picking me as your top mate. Because if I could have this huge handicap and still be standing, then I must be the real deal. All those other males are pretenders. They have smaller tails. They can't carry this costly signal. So in biology, this is called costly signaling. For a signal to be honest, it must be handicapping because it is costly. You follow? This is deep shit, uh, Isaac. I'm going to send you the bill. I just gave you probably about 10 years worth of university education. You ready? It's only 10 in the morning here. Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the point. Virtue signaling is costless, right? 
for me to change my avatar to put the French flag when France is attacked doesn't cost anything. It's bullshit. It's the fake male trying to pretend he's got courage. Speaking against Saudi Arabia while you live in Saudi Arabia, that's peacocking. That's an honest signal. So uh, Raif Badawi, who is a political prisoner who has spent now almost seven years in a hellhole of a jail in Saudi Arabia because he dared blog about some Saudi issues while he was in, in Saudi Arabia. I know his wife very well. She's become a very good friend. He will certainly win the Nobel Peace Prize the second that he is released. That is courage. All the celebrities are virtue signaling, meaning that they are the fake males with very small tails trying to pretend they have courage. But only those who truly, so for example, I've received innumerable death threats when I've, let's say, spoken out against certain problematic aspects of Islam, right? I used to have to go to the university and report to security to be followed to go into my class with security. My university forced me to go to the Montreal police to file a report and I had to bring the whole dossier of all the death threats that I had received. I don't mean to toot my own horn. That takes courage, right? Uh, engaging in bullshit, uh, you know, uh, the future is female from my Malibu house protected by six bodyguards doesn't take much courage. So these people are cowards. So I would advise all of your young viewers, if you truly want to live a meaningful life and make a difference, don't do all this bullshit virtue signaling. A, a signal has to be costly for it to be valuable. I think that's a beautiful God way. Damn. It's a beautiful way to end it, God. Thank you so much for your time, brother. I'll let you go. Um, but what I would like to do, if you do have time closer to the release of, of your book or perhaps even afterwards, I know you'll be doing a lot of media. If you want to come on for another chat, I think that'd be fantastic. And we'll... That'd be wonderful. That was really fun. I, I hope that uh, I didn't speak too long. No, no, no. Uh, Long-winded, but I mean, some of these things have to be explained with, with many explanations. So hopefully Mate, uh, you're... you're what I'm looking to do with this podcast is help people learn. And I, I just want to learn and talk to interesting people myself. And I think we absolutely did that today. So thank, thank you very you. much, Godfather. And where can everyone reach you? Where's the best place to reach? All the links will be thank down below. Thank you. So, uh, of course, please pre-order a copy of my book. It really matters that you pre-order because then when the book is released, it can hit the bestseller list right away when all the pre-orders come in. So it's really important that you don't say, I'll order it later, pre-order now. Uh, I just uh, launched a new website uh, where everything is there, my YouTube channel, my podcast. If you want to support my work, my blog, everything you want is in one central repository. It's GADSAD, so G-A-D-S-A-A-D.com. Go there, check it out, say hello. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Isaac. My pleasure. And uh, I will be pre-ordering that book as well because I can't wait to uh, sink my teeth into it. I've only just started reading. I'm a, I've always been putting it off and I, I started, I'm four books in. I just finished 12 Rules for Life uh, by Dr. Oh, yes. And uh, so I'm, I'm moving along, but I'll definitely be pre-ordering that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. As always, head to the Clips channel and uh, subscribe to that as well. If you can't digest these big podcasts in one big go, the clips are there uh, for your enjoyment as well. Anyway, God, thank you so much. I'll, uh, I'll see you next week, probably. Who knows? Unless I get cancelled. Toodaloo. Bye.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.